This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Everyone to the Essentials Program here in Jerusalem, Asia Torah. We are today going to take a little journey through the letters. In fact, our sages tell us an interesting thing, that you're supposed to trip in the letters of Judaism. It says, L'tayel, to trip. L'tayel means to trip. Ba'otiot, in the letters. So the letters themselves of the Hebrew alphabet are their own journey. You're supposed to actually journey into the letters. Every letter is a whole journey it takes you on. Oh, let me give you a couple examples of how we journey in the letters. Uh, if you could have a black pen, you have a black pen. Got some red. Let's see if these are any good. So let's just get one long, or maybe even two, one long line. We'll make that the top. This will be the baseline. That'll be the bottom. We'll start with this row. So, give you a couple examples. Uh, one example is the yud. Okay. Now, the upper line represents this represents the spiritual, and the lower line represents the physical. So, a yud is going to be our most spiritual letter. It is uh, in a letter that is of pure idea. It's the seminal idea. It is, uh, it's called Chochmah, it is called Av, Father, and it is, the, it is just pure idea state. So someone who's like a visionary for a company would be the Yud personality of that company. I have a company and I am the Yud of that company. The, the Yud is anytime, let's say you just feel like dairy. You want some dairy. So that's a Yud. That you want dairy is a Yud. Now, there's another letter that's the hay. I'm not going to go into that right now, but the hay would bring out the dimension of I want dairy. And the hay would be all of its dimension of dairy. What's the dimension of dairy? Milk, yogurt, cheese, cappuccino, pizza, ice cream, you know, cottage cheese. There's a lot of possibilities there. But that yud is just the pure vision of, like, I want some dairy. Now... The, so that, that's an example of a letter. Now, every Hebrew letter starts with the Yud, because everything starts with the Yud. Everything starts with the, with the vision, the idea. You, you haven't done anything that didn't start with the vision of you having done it. Like, even if you had thought of going to the amusement park, it started with the vision of you going down a roller coaster. The clothing you're wearing right now was the vision of a clothing designer. You yourself are a vision of your parents for creating children. The, everything is made first of vision, and that's the Yud. So every Hebrew letter always starts with the Yud. Now, another letter in the Hebrew alphabet is also a Yud. Remember, every letter starts with Yud, but it doesn't stay in idea form. It actually gets implemented into the world. So it actually comes down to earth, and that's called a Vav. A Vav is just a Yud implemented. That's what a Vav is. Vav is just an implemented Yud. And you'll notice that every personality is either a creative, those are Yuds, and then there's uh, people who are much more structure-oriented, much more in, um, they're good at detail and, and uh, 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 organization, administration. There, there's always these two people going on all the time. And it's usually half and half. Like right now we got, I don't know how many people in this room, about 18, let's say. So you'll notice, raise your hand if you're from the creatives. Creatives, raise your hand if you're from the more implement structure types. You can only be one or the other. There's not an. We didn't offer the third choice, so let's try that again. Um, people who are whose minds are just flowing around the heavens. 
and those are the creatives and people who are the implementers are good at implementing things. Yeah, like I said, it would come out about half, and it was half. So it's always half. And the reason it's always half is because God wants us to work together. God wants the creatives and the implementers to be together. As I've said many times in this class, Van Gogh sold his first piece of art in the last year of his life, meaning he was the classic example of a creative who never gets anything done. And, the, and then how many people would have made a living off Van Gogh? He probably could have had five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten implementers by the time... He would have, he would have died, and he would have died a wealthy man. He would have fed his family. He would have fed ten other people who were implementing, getting his art out in the world. There would probably have been all kinds of other art that he would have done in municipal level that would be on walls of, of buildings and stuff in in Europe. That none of that exists. All we have is some paintings from Van Gogh, of which he got no money from any of them, and no one else was fed in the process. Okay, and now those pieces of art are worth millions of dollars. So, so creatives and implementers have to work, always be together. And for those implementers who would like to make a living, I, you, you have such an easy job. Just find the most creative person who's, whose vision you, you get, like you really get their vision, and just go up to them and say, I now work for you, you're paying me $2,000 a month. They're going to say, where am I going to get $2,000 a month? You say to them, I'm going to borrow it. I'm borrowing it from the bank and you're going to pay it off. <laughs> and so you go borrow $12,000 from a bank, you pay yourself $2,000 a month, and your job is just to get that creative person's work into the world. And not only will you have paid the bank back, you yourself will have made a bunch of money, $2,000 a month, we just said. And, uh, and the person who's the creative is going to have made probably twice or three times that amount. And you're now hired with an amazing position as the basically the right-hand lady or man of, of someone who's highly creative, which is a great place to be. And then you're hiring people, which is, which is, you know, you can literally go and hijack a creative person's potential. And they're happy to do it, because what, otherwise they're aimless, they're just clueless, they don't know how to do it. And so if you're the kind of person who knows how to structure someone's creativity and get it out there, marketing it properly, so just go hijack someone's career and get their work out. It's kind of like Jobs and Wozniak, no? Who? Like Steve Jobs and Wozniak. Yeah, it's like Jobs and Wozniak. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. <laughs> Jobs and Wozniak. I, I, I think I actually saw a documentary and actually know what you're talking about, but it, until this very second, I had no idea what you were talking about. But now I think I do. Now, um, anyway, let's travel a little more in the letters, and then we're going to get into some other special stuff, which is uh, more on the request of our shin. We're going to be talking about a shin a little later. And we're going to do now uh, the Lamed. The word Lamed, what does it mean, the word Lamed? What does that mean? To study, right. Lamed means to study, to teach. It has everything to do with education. But it's um, specifically um, re re around the world of knowledge and bringing knowledge from the supernal down to earth. As any piece of knowledge you've ever heard started above and then it came down to like, till you... You live it, you know, until you can, can integrate it, which is obviously the goal in Judaism is always to integrate knowledge. We're not interested in philosophy. We're interested in physiolosophy. We don't like ideas for ideas' sake, okay? That's for people smoking marijuana, okay? We are interested in physiolosophy, ideas that you become part of. You, you integrate the idea. It becomes your life. And, and that is the Jewish look at thought. 
Thought is only in as much as you can live it and be it. If it's true, it's you. And so when you look at the Lamed, it's interesting how similar the Lamed is to the Yud and the Vav situation. Why? First of all, remember, knowledge. Where's knowledge come from? Knowledge is coming from, from the Creator. And I'm not talking about, not talking about like stuff people make up. I'm talking about like real facts, real truth. You know, whether it's the sciences, whether it's, uh, whether it's uh, life skills, like the real stuff. And obviously Torah, that's all, all the Torah wisdom, that's all coming from really high up. So where is that you're going to start? Where is that one starting? Yeah, that's going to start up here. So Lamed's going to be coming from up there. Okay? The, 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 it's kind of like the Vav's way up there. Now, someone tell me, where is that thing going to end? Tell me a point on the baseline. Where is that going to end? Tell me when to stop. Yeah. <laughs> a little late there, guys. Okay, where's the Lama going to stop? It's going to stop exactly like the Vav. It's going to be stopping right there. That's where it's going to stop. But to have an educational experience, watch this, and this is how you'll know, you'll love the teachers that have educated you well. The ones who have really been the great educators, watch what they do. Remember how I said you got a trip in the letters? So good educators take you on a journey. They take you on a trip. They know where they're going. They're going exactly where that buff was going. They know exactly where it's going to land. But they don't give it away. They let you get there. And how do you get there? They take a little trip. You're going over here for a while. This might be an analogy. This might be a story. This might be uh, many other side facts that are corollaries to the, to the whole point. But what's happening as the educator is developing, as the milamed, milamed means the one who causes lamed upon somebody. Whenever you put a mem, it's the causative, milamed, milamed. That's someone who causes lamed on someone, someone who causes uh, limud to happen, is someone who takes you on a journey. And, but then what do they do? They slowly bring you at the right time, nice and slow, right where the Vav would have gone in the first place. They take you right back to where, you know, they were going there anyway. So we just have kind of the Vav's just kind of hidden there. But there's so many things in life, you all know, that if you would go straight from the, from the vision and straight to the point, you would never have integrated it. It would never have become real for you. You couldn't have integrated it. You had to take a journey. How many of us have only really become who we are today and the wisdom that we possess is only from the journey we've been on? And for many of us, that's been a pretty rough journey. But you've learned your greatest lessons through your most difficult times. And you had to live it. It wasn't enough to sit in a classroom. There had to be an experience of going through something to get there. And that's why you'll notice when we learn Talmud, that when we're learning the Gemara, it's a tremendous journey to get anywhere in the Talmud. It's a real, real path you take. And sometimes you're in for pages, and you're still nowhere near the point. And, but eventually, you know, you get there. And that journey has led you to wisdom, like real wisdom, and integrated wisdom, through, the, through that path. Okay. How are we doing with the journey through the letters? Are you guys enjoying this? I mean, I can start talking about other things if you want. You guys like this so far? Yeah. <laughs> I don't really why, care why so much about the subject. Why, why do you call them face and not with you? 
Excellent question. So then we got the base. <laughs> Starting always with the Yud. Okay, then we got the base. And what do we notice about the base? Someone tell me something you see about the base. It's close from the back. Yeah, close from the back, open to the future. What's that? Yeah, it seems to be very stable, extremely stable, and it's got a. It's got a stand. Right, because it's it's like on a base. Uh, it's got a giant bub at the bottom. It's got a raish and a vav. Don't forget, all the letters are made of other letters. Like the vav is made of a yud and a and a vav and the. And the, the base, I mean, it's really above, but the rage, we've got a rage and a, and above going on here. Interesting. What's that rage doing there? What's the, what's the above doing there? And boy, is it grounded. It's really in this world. And think about the word base. What does it mean? Bait, bite. What does it mean? House. It's going to be an extremely grounding place, the house. The house is the anchor of a family. So the, the word bet is going to be very in the earth. You know, it's unlike any of these letters. This one doesn't touch. This one touches in one spot. This touches in one spot. The bayat, the house, the base is going to be totally on the, on the <coughs> earth. And, the, and you'll notice that it's open on one side, meaning it, the base is going towards the future. Yeah, it's open on that side. And closed to the back side. Now, what's the obvious question? If someone said, why does the Torah... Begin with the second letter. Why does the Torah begin with two? What was the obvious question? Shouldn't it begin with one, with Aleph? Shouldn't it begin with Aleph? And the answer is, yes, of course it should begin with Aleph. Where is the Aleph? The Aleph is hidden back here. Maybe I'll put a little Aleph there. Um, you know what we'll do? I'm putting an Aleph. Here comes an Aleph. Aleph is a Vav. It's got the Vav. And then it's got the Yud here. And it's got a Yud here. Okay? So the Aleph, which is made of two Yuds and a Vav, is the number one. Okay? That's the number one. And the Bet is the number two. What's after the Bet? Gimel. Gimel. Again, always starting with that Yud. Okay? And then what's after the Gimel? Then there's the Dalit. Okay, in the interesting, the Gimel looks a lot like an animal. What animal does it look like? Giraffe. Yeah, but think more Middle Eastern animals. <laughs> I put a hump. <laughs> like a camel. If you hang around the Middle East a lot, it's a camel. You know, it's got that long neck and the big head and stuff. Yeah, giraffes' heads are more straight up unless they're eating something down there. Anyway, it's like a, it's like a camel. And the word camel, how do you say camel in Hebrew? Gamal, gimel, gamal. And does a camel give to its owner? Oh boy, does it give. Man, you just fill that thing up with water and it will give all the way across the Sahara Desert. It just gives. And who does it give to? Who do you generally give to? Someone who lacks. How do you say lack in Hebrew with a dal at Lamed? A dal. A dal. This is called a dalit. But it's from the word poor. It gives to the poor. 
and it gives to the people in need. So the gimel is giving to the dalit. <laughs> okay, so now we have olive bet gimel dalit. We see the bet has turned its back on the olive. Why does it start with the bet? Because a couple things. Number one is the olive is like the secret of it all, meaning the olive's not revealable. Also, it's in their bet. Olive's in a bet. Why? Two olives are a bet. What is a gimel? Three olives. So the olive's in everything. And the olive's, olive's never missing from anything. For example, when I play a 440 oscillation string on my guitar, which is the A, uh, obviously I'm guessing I don't have perfect pitch but let's just say my vocal cords are moving right now at 440 oscillations per second uh, what is that number 440? it's 440 440 ones so it's in everything it's in absolutely everything that's the beauty of, of the oneness of God is everything is made of vibrational frequencies which has numbers like an A has 440 but it's 440 olives because Hashem is one in everything now, the, um, the other reason why the bet, so the bet's got its back towards the olive because, because the olive is the secret of it all and we'd all go crazy if we, if we actually knew the olive. Like if you actually had the olive revealed first, I don't think any of us would be sane. We'd be like, you'd go tonight to brush your teeth and put it on your forehead. You know, we, we, we're not supposed to see the olive so much. The olive is hidden. Yeah, it's, it's infinite. Yeah. And it's also the yin-yang, you know, if you put a circle around it, you know, it's ultimately that perfect balance of yin-yang. That's what the olive is, in Kabbalistically. It's like perfect, the perfect balance. And, the, and now the olive with the bet is av, which is father, you know, which is giving birth to the entire creation, just like the yud, I said, was av, is seminal. So olive with bet is, is av. Yeah, and then, but the Torah begins with a bet. And this is the next thing, is that the Torah, the, the world, the physical world created with the world, with the word bereshit, the physical world, which was created with the word bereshit, has turned its back on the olive. Why did it turn its back on the olive? It turns its back on the olive because if you look around, everything looks physical. Does this look like a helmet or does this look like God in the shape of a helmet? It looks like a helmet. But can there be a helmet if God wasn't vivifying my helmet with his energy? No, there is no helmet without God making the helmet be here. But this helmet's turned its back. It's traitorous. The physical world is traitorous to God, and that's why it begins with a bet. It's traitorous to God. And you'll notice by no coincidence, bet gimeldalit is the word boged, which means to be a traitor. To be a traitor. That bet gimeldalit means traitorous, because the bet and the gimeldalit have turned their back on the olive. They're traitorous to the oneness. So really, the world's all one. It's just that the physical world has a traitorous nature in that it seems separate. You know, there's two different notebooks here. Two separate notebooks. This clothing is not me, it's separate from me. This, we're living in a world of separation, a world of multiplicity. And that world of multiplicity, which begins with a bet, because what is two? Two is no longer one. It's two or more, really. Once you're at two, you're no longer at one. And once you're at 
once you're no longer at one, you're a traitor. And this is why when we say Shema, and we go back to the Aleph, what do we do with our right hand? We cover the traitorous world. We cover the multiplicity. We take our four-cornered garment called the Sitzit. Where are my Sitzit? <laughs> hey, man, I ain't got no Sitzit. <laughs> oh, there they are. The, uh, I can always tell how fast I left the bathroom with if my Sitzits aren't really available. Anyway, the, uh, can you imagine dealing with these things every day? <laughs> I remember putting them on like 26 years ago when I got here after university. And I was like, you mean I'm going to be dealing with these cumbersome strings for the rest of my life? <laughs> really hasn't gotten any better. But, but I never got used to it. But I do, I love my senses. I really do. I'm crazy about my senses. I should really change them once in a while. So, anyway, we take this four-cornered garment and we unite them. We unite the four-cornered garment on the webbing on the webbing of our fingers, uniting them, hold them in our fists, unite them, and then we say Shema. That's what the men do. Because we got these four corners. What are these? That's northeast, southwest, representing distinction, representing multiplicity, representing extension, representing uh, um, ultimately traitorousness to the oneness. And when I go out into the world and have things that are distracting to me, I remember, my sitzes remember, I, I glance at them, which is the word latzit. I glance at the sitzes. Sitzes is the word to glance. To, I, I take a peek and I say, ha, huh, oh yeah. In every, all the four corners is the oneness. It's all God. Treat the world that way. Live in the world as if it's all one. Treat your fellow human being as if we're all one. And then... Then I cover my eyes and say Shema. Now, why on the webbing? Why does it have to be on the webbing? The reason it has to be on the webbing is human beings have a tendency. might be today, it's, you'd probably just call it OCD, but human beings have a tendency to, um, to kind of divorce the physical and become like super spiritual. I don't know if any of you have that tendency, but there are people who will like go into this. I think we call it in the Jewish world, frooming out. But uh, there, there's a tendency to like forget that there's something physical at all. Chances are, for most people these days, it's just really you're escaping responsibility and you just want to live in spot and not have to deal with bills. But the but that tendency to because once you really, really integrate the fact that this is all God, once you get in your heart that this is all God, so who says you're going to eat? Who says you're going to drink? Who says you're going to work? Who says you're going to be part of the physical world? If you realize that this world's purely spiritual by nature, so why would you ever, why, why do you even need to make a phone call? Why do you have to be part of this world? And so the animal that you are, meaning the physical part of your body, that's the animal, has webbing here. And we learn from horseback riders about putting the sitsis on the webbing. Because when you ride a horse, you put the reins on the webbing. You know why? Because inside the horse's mouth is a bit on its lips. And if you ride a horse with full fists on the reins, and you stop the horse, you could pull the horse's lips 
and cut the lips of the horse. And so by having it on your own, these are like little lips you have on your fingers to sensitize yourself to the animal that you're riding. You see, ladies and gentlemen, we are riding on an animal. You're a soul and you're riding on a horse. The horse is your body. But the more you get clear with spirituality, the more you realize that this horse is irrelevant compared to, to the horse is irrelevant compared to the rider. Now I know there's plenty of people who are young and dumb and full of testosterone and hormones and stuff whose horse is riding them, which is a crazy sight. But if you can imagine a horse riding a person, you know, like with the reins around your mouth and they're like riding. Now, the Shema. The Shema works like this. We start with the Shin, and uh, uh, you know what I'm going to do instead? I just realized I'm going to go vertical with the Shema. Let's start with the Shin here. I'm going to use uh, red for fire. Um, the Shin, you'll notice that it has it comes from a point and then it moves out and expands from that point. It looks a lot like a, a bonfire. It's related to the element called fire, and it is related in the periodic table of the elemental chart of elements as, as carbon. Okay, so that's the shin. Each letter of Hebrew has to do with elements because the whole world's created from Hebrew. And so every letter has something to do with the periodic table. So the, the shin of Shema represents fire. What does fire cause? What does heat cause? Expansion. Expansion. Come on, look alive, guys. Everyone say expansion. Expansion. Heat causes expansion. So the shin, which represents fire, see, it has to do with expansion. Now, that's interesting. We're talking about Shema. What do the four sitzes represent? Ex the four corners, expanding out into physicality, into the multiplicity. Now that's the shin. Now, interestingly, the sound that the shin makes with the lips, shh, the sound shh, has the highest wave, has the highest sine wave of any sound that the mouth makes. The only wave that's similar and almost as big, interestingly, is if you put the dot on this side, what letter is that? A sin. And that's s, which literally sounds like fire. S. It sounds like fire. You know, they, it sounds like fire. It has the highest frequency, the most expanded frequency of any sound that the mouth makes. Clear what the shin is? Now we go into the mem. I hope you're all like, while we're doing this class, I hope you're all marveling at how beautiful Torah is. Yeah. Are you marveling at that? Are you guys taking a moment to sit? Like, we've been in the, for in the trees. Can you, like, step back into the forest for a moment and realize that we are literally... Like, I mean, think about what we're talking about here. I'm supposed to be explaining letters. You want to hear a class on the letter P? Q? R? It's not going to be a very long class. Okay, P sounds like this. It's not going to mean much. Now, it does mean a lot when you 
connect English to Hebrew. For example, if you have the word fruit, yeah, and put it in Hebrew, yeah, so what word is that? Peirot. It is the word fruit. You understand? The word peirot is fruit. Because Hebrew is the Hebrew is the source of all of the 70 languages of earth. Our globe has 70 major key languages and, and the root of it is Hebrew. That's a whole other class where we see the roots of, of, um, of Hebrew in, in the other languages. Now, anyway, but you should be marveling at this. This is like, this is amazing. <laughs> the word, you know what the word is for thing in Hebrew? Like object thing? What's the word for thing? Dovar. Davar. What's the word for word in Hebrew? Davar. The thing and word. Object and word are the same thing. Meaning, in the rest of the world, word and an object are two very separate word, object. It's two separate things. Word, subject. It's two separate things. Why? Because the word... I mean... This is in case, this is, I mean, it would probably be called a hat, kova. But the word, the word kova means this, whereas the word helmet or hat is only a symbol to make us think of things people put on their heads. You understand the difference between a symbol and the thing itself? Like, for example, if you look at the word water, I guess we'll do that now. If you look at the word, now I'm using blue for water. And water is the, is the element that has, that has to do with hydrogen. And it's the element of fire. And guess what the frequency of the mem is? Mm, what, what kind of line should I put? Answer, straight line. Mm, so now we got shh, mm, we got four quarters gathered into one hand. We got the world gathered into darkness, into oneness. Because what is what is darkness? When you cover your eyes and you see the darkness, what are you looking at? It's oneness. Darkness is oneness. And so you got the shh, shh mm, and the mem is the contractive letter. And what does water do? Water causes contraction. It causes things to condense. If you put a screw in water, if I took my cup of water and put a screw in it and came back a year or two later, would it still be here? This soft water screw that can hold, hold up a building. Water cannot hold up buildings. But the water will consume the screw. It will cause the screw to contract into water. <laughs> Amazing. Water is the ultimate contractive. Now, by the way, people are, are very expansive, and we often scatter into the world. And whenever we scatter, whenever we lose our concentration, water brings us back. This is why I go to mikveh every day. This is why a woman whose, whose ability to create has been scattered through menstruation goes to mikveh afterwards. This is why men who have been busy in commerce all week, they've been doing business, their minds are scattered out into a million details when they slide into home to buy it, when they slide into home plate on Shabbos. Even non-Hasidic men go to mikvah on Fridays 
because they're, they've been scattered in the world of business and interactions and stuff. They're coming home now. We're going back into our little sanctuary of outside time and space called Shabbos. And so i got to recontract myself. When a man has, has lost his seed, which is creative, but his seed has scattered because of uh, you know, being involved with his spouse, the, he goes to mikvah the next day. Mikvah, 40. It's got to have 40 sa'ah. Uh, sa'ah is, I think, like, uh, it would be like six one-and-a-half liter bottles of... Uh, uh, sa'ah is like six one-and-a-half liter, like a Pepsi bottle. Like a classic water bottle you'd buy. You know, the bigger one, liter and a half. So six liter and a half is a saw. And so 40 saw is the minimum requirement for a kosher mikvah. Now, the... Water. Davar. Thing. Meaning, um, the word water... Where, what does the word water mean, everybody? Say nothing. It doesn't mean anything. It's a symbol that means stuff that's liquidy. You understand? Where does the word water come from? It comes from the Germanic word Wasser. It doesn't mean anything. It's a symbol. This means something. As if I spritz it on Ushi, he'll be wet. So that means something. It's water. It's this stuff. But the word water doesn't mean anything. It's a symbol for the word water. Now, in Spanish, agua, agua does not mean anything. It's just a symbol we use for this stuff. But Hebrew, what is, what is the word? Mayim. Mayim. It's got two mems. It's got two mems. There's a mem there. There's a mem there. And then what does it have? A yud. Um, what do you think the yud is in uh, Hebrew? What do you think the yud is in Hebrew? What is that yud floating up high? What do you think it represents? Oxygen. Oxygen. Check out the word mayim. It's the actual, it's two hydrogens and an oxygen. That's what I'm saying, is Hebrew is not symbolic of something. It is the thing itself. This time it's oxygen gas. <laughs> so the the word Mayim is H2O itself. This is the beauty of Hebrew, is the word Davar, the thing is the word. And and that's I mean, that's why, ladies and gentlemen, if you study Hebrew and you know Hebrew well, you have the key to creation. You have everything right at your fingertips, because you really understand Hebrew. When you really get Hebrew well, so you're you're speaking in the language of creation itself like highly Kabbalistic to be speaking in Hebrew. Obviously there's a lot of slang and stuff that doesn't fit into all this, but the, generally you have that. A couple of cool things about Hebrew is, um, is that it's, um, it doesn't have uh, swear words. There's no not nice words in Hebrew. Yeah, if you want to call someone something, you have to like, you know, start with the word uh, Ben or something like, call them the child of a something or you know, it's like they, it doesn't come out as with any swear words whatsoever. Also, if there's a concept 
in the rest of the world that doesn't have a Hebrew word for it, so then it's not it's not real. It's not a real concept. <laughs> if there's a concept that people hold as a real concept, but it's not in Hebrew, that means it's not really a concept. It's a human construction, but not true in its essence. For example, uh, follower. There's no word in Hebrew for follower. And that's my work. My, my whole work, I don't know if you know, but I, I do seminars called The Possible You. That's what I, our friend flew in for from uh, Seattle. Uh, not this friend. There's another friend from Seattle who I just met. Anyway, but I just had a man flying from Seattle to do The Possible You. What's my whole work there? My whole work is that you are, you are the one who's amazing. You're the star of this show. You understand? You're starring your own movie, but you're playing the extra. You're playing an extra in someone else's film. But there's no such thing. And I know that for a fact because of Hebrew doesn't include anything, any concept of extra or follower. There's no such thing as a follower. There's no word in Hebrew for follower. And what makes you a good leader? What, there is lots of words for leader, which doesn't make a lot of sense. How can we have a lot of words for leader? <coughs> and very few words, sorry, no words for follower. A lot of words for leader, no words for follower. How does that work? The answer is, what's a good leader? What's a real leader? A good leader is someone who is able to create leadership. Someone who is able to see inside you where your contribution is. that Where, where your torch is to light up the world with. That's leadership. You understand? Leadership isn't there to put, make someone smaller. A leader there is to fan the flames of others. That's what a leader is. Think about anyone you've loved as a leader. It was always because you felt bigger in their presence. It was someone who gave you you on your highest level. Like they, they gave you your contribution of what you're here to give the world. That's what a leader is. Hebrew doesn't have a word for follower. Another one is it doesn't have a word for vacation. There's no word for it. Vacation in Hebrew. But boy, is that a big, is that a trillion dollar word? <laughs> in Westernism, whoa, get me out, you know, vacation time. You know, there's, there's no word for that. There is a word for, chofesh uh, just means free. Yeah, and, uh, and the, oh no, we have Hebrew words in modern Israeli society that we, we call, one's called nofesh. <laughs> nofesh is the word soul. I'm going on soul for the week. It's the word soul. And then chofesh means free. Free. But, you know, I've seen a lot of people on vacation, they were far from free. And they had a lot of obligations. They happened to be taking a break from them. But they, they were not free. Um, anyway, so there's that, that word vacation doesn't exist. Now, does that mean you don't meditate every day? Does that mean you don't soak in a bathtub with lavender and light music and candles you better do that stuff if you want to be productive and not catch a cold because the I'll give you all a secret to never get sick anyone here want a secret to never get sick again never catch a cold again well, there's a couple secrets on that but I'm gonna give you one of them. one of them is that you always you that you plan downtime plan downtime what is catching a cold catching a cold is downtime for the people who don't believe they deserve it I'm going to say that again. Catching a cold is downtime for the people who don't believe they deserve it. So, people who plan downtime don't get sick because they're, when they do their downtime, 
they're already told their body, I love you, I care about you, I realize you can't always be putting out, and it's okay to just take some time down to rejuvenate. And then their body's like, oh, you love me? Okay, I love you too. And the immune system goes up. Okay? Anyway, that's one secret on immunities. Now, there's many more. The next letter of Shema, okay, right now we're on Shema. Check, how are we doing time wise? This class, go ahead. This class goes a little late, some people have three o'clock <coughs> programs. Um, our, our group has a tour. I don't know where it is today. Anyone know? Meshar. Oh, Meshar. So that's a men only tour. Um, it starts in a few more minutes. The, the, rap, the tour guide comes here in a few minutes. Now, the, uh, the next is the Ayan. We're almost done. We're just getting Shema in here. So I should have started with the Yud, but... Okay, the next is Shema, and that's the Ayan. Tell me, what is the word Ayan? Someone point to the Ayan. It's the I. The I is the Ayan. It's your, it's your eye. It's to see. But the word Ayan, just like the English word to see, is used not only to see physically, but it also means to see deeply, right? Like if someone's explaining something to you, like an insight that you need to have, insight, an insight, and then you say, hmm, I see what you're talking about. I see. Yeah, that's when you got it. So that's the word ayin. Ayin means to see deeply. In fact, in the morning in yeshivas, you know, right now there's like more Jews learning Torah than our entire history from the temple times, meaning from Sinai till today, there are more Jews learning Torah than all of our history. And in the morning, they learn something called, listen to the word ayin, they learn something called Iyun. Iyun means to look deep into the Talmud, which means you're probably in one, in a four, you know, they learn from nine to one in the morning. Those four hours, you probably won't get more than an inch of Talmud during those four hours. And at that rate, you're not going to get anywhere really in Talmud. But in the afternoon, they learn, they cover ground. So in the afternoon, they might learn a whole page, but in the morning, they're just going to learn like an inch, an inch a day. Just can learn an inch a day and go in and in and in and in into the eye and look deep. Now, let's put it all together. Let's put the Shema together. Oh, just uh, one more nice tidbit that you might enjoy is the. Uh, I'll put it over here. Uh, something you might enjoy is the. Uh, Is that the, the, how do you say sun in Hebrew? Shemesh. Shin, mem, which is a hydrogen, and shin. What is it? It's hydrogen engulfed in fire. It's a burning ball of hydrogen. That's what the sun is. The sun is a burning ball of hydrogen. Okay, Rosh Hashanah is the solar year or the lunar year? It's the lunar year. How long is the uni, lunar year? 360, 354. 350, it's 355 in a decimal or two. Or 354 in decimals. But it's basically 3.55 when you round it. So that's 300. Noon is 50. Hey, it's 5. It's 3.55. The word Shana is 3.55. And it also means to change. Because we're expected to be changing all the time. And especially on Rosh Hashanah. 
We we created the whole New Year's resolution idea to change. Although my graduates know that the more you try to change, the more it stays the same. So we use the word transform. But let's go into, uh, let's do Shema now. We got Shema, it's scatterbrain, details of life, physicality, the bet. The gimel, the dalet, you know, externalities, externals. Mem, contract, oneness, everything comes back to one. The mem contracts everything back into itself. And when I've done that, now I go, ah, What's the wow? So, Shema, what's the big wow? Well, one wow is the fact that it says Yisrael. Why does it say Yisrael? If God is one, he's one for the nations. Why is it? Why is the Shema so ethnocentric? You ever thought about that, Esther? Why is the Shema, why is the Shema Yisrael? Why is it not Shema China? Or why isn't it Shema the world? Shema HaOlam. So Rashi doesn't like that. You should know our sages are not ethnocentric. So Rashi's, Rashi asks, why is it Shemat Israel? Here, O Israel. Shouldn't it be the world? Isn't this an important statement to the whole planet? Why just Israel? And says, says Rashi that it's for Israel now. What's it? What's for Israel now? That all there is is God. It's that Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, that it's all one. Why is it for Israel? Because the Israelites got prophecy. So they know that the world's not physical. They know the physical world's not real. You gotta go. And these are my closing lines. So just you can go. I always go a little later on this day because there's no class after mine. Okay? Let me just uh, run quick because I'm, I'm gonna. I'm... You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.